Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 88, November 21st to November 27th, 1862. Before we get going, let me say to everybody, I hope you have, or had, a very happy Thanksgiving. Last week, we discussed the Emancipation Proclamation, and even read out what will be released in 1863. We also talked about the Gatling gun, coming out in a patent from Richard Gatling. I want to go ahead and introduce a couple of figures, which we may have mentioned, but are important to our story, in Clara Barton, Herman Hopt, and Montgomery Meggs. Before we get into the meat of the story here today, once again, do want to announce there is Patreon content here this week. Obviously, from the beginning of the month, we have Hardtack and Coffee, that is a memoir review. We have mentioned that in the previous episodes. And coming up, uh, it's hard to believe we're already getting into December here, but for December, we're going to do a movie review, and we're going to do Gods in General, so... You don't want to miss that. You might want to miss the very long movie, but probably don't want to miss my analysis of that and review. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, the Patreon link is in the description. And of course, your contribution to the show is greatly appreciated. This week, we will begin by focusing on an event we have already mentioned in the court-martial of Fitzjohn Porter. Now, we already have very briefly talked about the court-martial of Fitzjohn Porter in the aftermath of Second Bull Run, but we really have not gone too far in depth about the details in the proceedings. Remember, key to our story is that Porter is a McClellan disciple and was well known to be a McClellan disciple. In fact, Porter shared some of the characteristics that made McClellan unlikable, notably a touch of arrogance. That does not win you many friends, and when you combine political convictions, it could prove to be detrimental to your work status, which still holds true today, although perhaps more so in the 1800s. Now, I do want to take a little bit of time here to mention that while Fitzjohn Porter is a McClellan disciple, if you will, there are other generals in the Army of the Potomac who are also going to owe their allegiance to McClellan, and it's an ongoing problem. You know, I think sometimes we feel like just because Little Mac is gone that all ties to his army, to his regime, are also going to be gone. But if you look at it, you know, Winfield Scott Hancock, he's another survivor, I guess you could say, of these McClellan men, if you will. And he is very notably in 1863, not willing to take on army command because of the example set by McClellan. And then if you think about it, the more commanders that you get, the more individuals that are going to have these kind of allegiances to, then it makes for an interesting mix of individuals in the army. 
in the Confederate side of things, the Army of Northern Virginia, you really don't have that problem because you have Robert E. Lee. And in future episodes, we'll get into kind of the politics of the Confederate military, and there are some that do pose a problem for them. But obviously, I think the Army of the Potomac in particular, things are on full display in terms of that kind of political arena. Now, in the case of Fitzjohn, we need to go over the facts. Hopefully, you all remember Porter and his career so far. He does well without support at Gaines's Mill, and then does well again defending Malvern Hill during the Peninsula Campaign. When McClellan is replaced with Pope, Porter does not hide his feelings for the Western General. Pope had given Porter an order to begin a night march on the 27th that would have put him at Bristow Station. This move may have greatly affected how the Battle of Second Manassas unfolds. You recall that Jackson opens up with an attack on King's Division at the Bronner Farm. Morrill and Sykes, the division commanders under Porter, would deem a night march unnecessary and advise against the movement. Don't want to be blundering around in the dark and bump into Stonewall. So the Corps would not move to be in position on the 28th. On the 29th, during the assaults on the unfinished railroad cut, Porter would be given a strange order to potentially threaten Jackson's right flank. Now Longstreet had arrived on the field, and the move would potentially give the Confederates a shot at the open flank of the entire Army of Virginia, and thus, most likely, end in disaster for the Union. But the order is so vague that it essentially says, and I am paraphrasing, do this or that or do nothing. Which is, even in the modern times, confusing. McDowell definitely has blame because he has the order as well and does not decipher or take command as the senior officer in the situation. In fact, I think what McDowell actually does during the battle is, once he gets that order, along with Porter, McDowell rides off to join Pope at his headquarters, rather than really take responsibility. So Porter does probably what I would have done, and just kind of sits tight. In doing so, he probably saves the Federal forces from an even larger defeat than what they ended up suffering. If he does this proposed movement, then he's probably going to get destroyed, and Longstreet would then be free to roll up the army as he saw fit. As we know, Porter's Corps leads the renewed assault on Jackson the next day. Longstreet then attacks, throwing the Union army into retreat, which is oddly enough stopped by amongst other divisions, one commanded by George Sykes, who is under Porter on Henry House Hill. Following Pope's removal, and then McClellan's resurgence, Porter would remain a corps commander. At Antietam, his corps is held in reserve and not thrown into the fight, perhaps ensuring that Lee escapes, but perhaps not, as we have covered in our analysis of the Battle of Antietam. You better believe this frustration at not striking a crushing blow 
and then also the subsequent allowing of Lee to escape and the continued delay in the Loudoun Valley campaign have an effect on the feelings toward Porter. After McClellan was gone from command, Porter is in effect left with his flank in the air. He would be arrested and a court-martial assembled to review the charges. Amazingly, John Pope had originally spoke with Porter and mentioned how he would not be bringing any such charges against him. That probably changed with all the negative press he was receiving. Despite being sent on his super-important mission to Minnesota, he still had friends in the capital, and, unfortunately for Fitzjohn, the mail still ran from Minnesota to the capital as well. The charges were twofold from the Articles of War. One charge was for disobeying an order, and the other charge was misconduct before an enemy, essentially cowardice. Now, there were specifications, so specific instances that were tied to each charge. If you are the War Department, and you really don't like McClellan, and you really don't like Democrats, then who are you going to get to fill the ranks of the court-martial, I wonder? Well, I am sure you're going to find some more than willing participants. These men included Republicans such as David Hunter, future President James Garfield, and John Slaw, who had won the Battle of Glorieta Pass, now the Governor of Alexandria. You also fill the court with pliable individuals, who may have something to gain from the outcome, retribution or otherwise. Ricketts and King, two division commanders, were on the board, as well as Silas Casey, who you remember had been essentially fired by McClellan following his poor placement during the Battle of Seven Pines. Benjamin Prentice, recently released from a Confederate prison, E.A. Hitchcock, former chairman of the War Board, and Napoleon Bonaparte Buford rounded out the rest. So needless to say, there were not many fans of Porter, if any at all. Porter had a reputation much like that of George Stone, the scapegoat after Ball's Bluff, of acting under McClellan's order and returning slaves, as well as avoiding hard war on southern civilians. It's interesting that you get this mix of individuals, right? Silas Casey probably had a bone to pick with McClellan, and if he can't take a shot at McClellan, why not take a shot at Fitzjohn Porter? And I think, in just in general, that's sort of the War Department's aim here, is that they weren't able to get McClellan in front of a court-martial like this, right? But they are able to get first George Stone, and now they're able to get Fitzjohn Porter. Likewise, you have Ricketts and King. These guys had so-so performances during the campaigns in Virginia. Obviously, King you know, suffered from seizures, but they're going to want to be getting into the good graces of the War Department as well. So it's an interesting mix of individuals. Starting in November of 1862 and lasting 45 days, the court-martial would meet. Porter, of course, would plead not guilty to all charges. Testimonies would vary. Sort of like Pope, 
there were men who wanted to clear their names following the Battle of Second Manassas. One such man was Irvin McDowell, who, as we recorded in our Second Manassas episode, does not perform very well. It should be noted that McDowell was so unliked in the army following First Manassas that it was rumored he was in fact a traitor. What was the big evidence that McDowell was giving secrets to the enemy? Well, it was the fact that he wore a hat he had made out of bamboo during the hot Virginia summer. Yes, his bamboo hat was apparently a signal to the enemy about their movements. This is fairly ridiculous, but we should point out that such were camp rumors, and obviously McDowell was wanting to get back in terms of positive press. If not positive press, at least revert from any additional negative press. Remember, this is the guy who lost the first Battle of Manassas, and he was the example of what not to do in terms of these Union generals. Don't bring on the next battlefield disaster like McDowell. Sykes and Morrill would testify on behalf of their superior, mentioning how they had advised against the night march. Porter did have a lawyer, one who had been the same lawyer for Zachary Taylor. His defense was fairly sound. He argued that Pope had issued orders, but was not aware of the situation on the ground, and so Porter needed to adapt to fit the strategic situation. Pope did not know that Longstreet had shown up on the second day at Manassas. Judicious discretion was the official term used by the defense in arguing against the orders of Pope. But alas, it would not save him when facing the stacked jury. Porter would be found guilty of both charges, although he would be cleared of two of the specifications of the first charge, the one where he disobeyed orders. This included disobeying an order to immediately attack Jackson's flank. If you recall, it was John Pope's own nephew who was tasked with delivering the order and he had got lost, not finding Porter's corps until 6.30 p.m. Thus, Porter was not able to immediately attack. He had also sent a brigade to Centerville, which was actually not contrary to any of Pope's orders. Most damning, though, was upholding the misconduct in the face of the enemy. So Porter was deemed a coward and worse a traitor, something he most definitely was not. In fact, his men had suffered greatly during the assault on the railroad cut, and it was contingents of his men who had stood and stopped the Confederates from crushing the army entirely. Despite this contribution, Fitzjohn Porter was cashiered from the army and sent away. But Porter would not take the verdict lying down. He would set out immediately to clear his name, starting with examining whatever battlefield reports even the terrain of the battlefield itself. He wrote to anyone he could to try to get statements and testimonies. Even Longstreet and Lee received letters so that they could add the perspective of the enemy. Compiling all evidence, it would take some time for anyone to look at the case again. 
Edwin Stanton, would not hear of it during his tenure. Andrew Johnson, likewise, would not consent to a retrial. Rutherford B. Hayes, during his presidency, would commission our friend John Schofield to a commission in order to review the case. Porter's quest for redemption was temporarily sidetracked when James Garfield was elected president. It's pretty obvious, but remember James Garfield had been on the board of inquiry, so he was not interested in overturning a verdict he helped to give. Luckily for Porter, and unluckily for Garfield, the president was assassinated, sending Chester A. Arthur to the presidency. The Garfield assassination was in 1881, but the findings of the commission were actually given in 1879. This included an exoneration of Porter and his conduct. Included in the report was the finding. What General Porter actually did do, although his situation was by no means free from embarrassment and anxiety at the time, now seems to have been only the simple, necessary action which an intelligent soldier had no choice but to take. It is not possible that any court-martial could have condemned such conduct if it had been correctly understood. On the contrary, that conduct was obedient, subordinate, faithful, and judicious. It saved the Union Army from disaster on the 29th of August. It would be 1884 when Porter would officially be reinstated to the rank of colonel, retiring, vindicated two days later. Porter would die in 1901, but his legacy lives on at Manassas National Battlefield. Porter's research included detailed maps of the terrain, which allowed the Park Service to help preserve the field accurately to what it had looked like in 1862. So I do want to mention probably one of the more famous individuals to begin nursing during the Civil War. I mention her today because she does have a monument on the Antietam battlefield, the only monument to a civilian currently sitting there. Clara Barton, or Clarissa Howe Barton, was born to a prosperous family in Massachusetts in 1821 on Christmas Day. In her early years, she would become a teacher and begin to develop the soft skills necessary to become a nurse although she will not have any kind of professional training. In 1854, she would start work in the U.S. Patent Office, being one of the first women to hold a position with the federal government. When the war broke out in 1861, Barton would look to assist the wounded in any way that she could. This actually started with caring for the wounded of the 6th Massachusetts following the Baltimore riots, that regiment being made up of troops she knew personally from the Bay State. Eventually, she would create a train of medical supplies, organizing men on the battlefields to provide care. I've seen that many of the medical supplies that she brought to the field were paid for out of her own funds. Every major battlefield in the Eastern Theater would be touched by Barton, her becoming known as the Angel of the Battlefield. The type of care would vary from dressing wounded, to serving food and water, to even providing personal assistance, 
writing letters to loved ones. After the war, she will go on to assist families in finding missing soldiers, either reconnecting wounded men or marking graves. Obviously, this kind of work was bringing closure to the families involved and must have been straining. In the 1880s, Clara would travel to Europe to recover. While there, she would link up with the early stages of the Red Cross, becoming involved in that organization and bringing the Red Cross to America. She would go on to become the first president of the American Red Cross before her death in 1912 at the age of 91. I do want to also mention Herman Hopp, who has a bigger impact on the war than you might realize. It was Hopp who was going to meet with Burnside along with Montgomery Meigs to determine the feasibility in a logistical sense of change of base to Fredericksburg, making an attempt on the rebel capital from that route. You see, Haupt was a railroad man who had also a deep sense of duty toward his country. At one point, he even offers to work without a salary, although that also may have been an attempt to not work under the same rules and regulations as the rest of the military, resigning in 1863 when faced with this eventuality. This is very similar, if you recall, to the telegraph workers. These men were not military personnel, but the difference is that Hopped will obtain the rank of Brigadier General. It was the Philadelphia native who would organize the railroads in the East, also spending some time with Sherman in Tennessee and Georgia. Haupt had a strong railroad background, working since he was young on different lines, so he was just the guy for the job, placing an emphasis on logistical support using the railroad as we have mentioned, the Civil War being the first conflict this is done on a large scale. He would spend his time repairing track and building bridges, his work even being inspected by Abraham Lincoln himself. In another weird twist and connect to the president, it was Hopped who would bring some of the first eyewitness accounts from the Battle of Gettysburg to the White House. Famously, it was Haupt who said that Lee was in dire straits and could be trapped like a rat following the three-day battle. After the war, Haupt would go back into railroading and even build one of the first oil pipelines. We need to also mention Montgomery Meigs, who will also meet with Burnside shortly after taking his command. Meigs was the quartermaster general for the Union Army. He had been born originally in Georgia before attending West Point. He would be assigned to the building of the Washington Aqueduct, which would actually include what was at the time the largest single-span arch in the world. When war broke out, he would side with the Union cause and perform well in his role. When we talk about these campaigns in which the Federals are well supplied, a lot of that is due to the work of Meigs and his department. Much like Haupt, he is often not given a whole lot of credit for his service. We have two landmarks in the Washington area that we specifically owe to Meigs. One is the National Building Museum, 
which used to be the pension office designed by Miggs. The other more well-known is Arlington National Cemetery. One of the Meg's sons was killed, and Meg's believed killed in a skirmish in which he had surrendered at Swift Run Gap in Virginia. We'll most likely get to that particular incident, but it's believed that his son had surrendered and was then subsequently executed following him being taken prisoner, so he was particularly not a fan of the Confederacy. Not that he was before, but he's not a fan of the Confederacy and not a fan of Robert E. Lee, who he blames for the continuance of the war in Virginia. Because of this, he would establish a cemetery on the grounds of Robert E. Lee's house, which is in Arlington, and is going to become Arlington National Cemetery. So we will stop the episode there. We went over the details of the court-martial of Fitz John Porter. We also introduced three important figures, Herman Hopp, Montgomery Meggs, and then finally Clara Barton. Next week, we have a few scattered events. We need to start Grant's attempt on Vicksburg. We also need to kick off the Stones River campaign, and we have some continued action in Arkansas. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback, of course, is welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.